Yesterday morning, I had to wait for the Comcast guy to come out and tell us that all of our cables were eaten by squirrels. So, <laughs> Really? Yes. <laughs> Every word of what I just said is true. <laughs> Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. Uh, as always, I am your co-host, Martha Sullivan. Uh, this morning, I am not quite worse for the wear, but coming off of a, a fairly up and down, a week that had its peaks and valleys, let's say. <laughs> uh, and I am here, as always, with our other lovely co-host. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, and uh, let's see, I am choosing not to sign my name in The Devil's Book, because I just finished watching uh, season one of Sabrina. Yes! <laughs> uh, but it won't uh, be what I'm going to talk about for my uh, pop culture stuck-in-my-head <laughs> thing, so I'm just shoehorning that in here and then dropping it. That's fair. Listeners who would like to, to read a uh, complete chronicle of my thoughts on the chilling adventures of sabrina should sign up for my newsletter uh this nice morning <laughs> well it'll come up again at the end um so we are going to be talking uh later in the episode about ghosts of time and memory uh and to help us unpack that incredibly convoluted topic is friend of the show and previous guest mark romberg hello Thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. How are you? Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty well, I'd say. Thank you very much. Good. Uh -huh. uh, so as I said, we are going to get into some uh, esoteric discussion a little bit later. But first, uh, we are going to tell you all what is stuck in our heads this week. Um, basically, what pop culture have we experienced that we just... Uh, cannot stop thinking about, absolutely must talk about. Pete, why don't you go first? Because I'm looking at yours on the show document, and I am interested to hear you talk about it. Cool. Um, Thursday, I continued what is becoming a mini tradition for me, which is uh, going to see some art house horror movie on a weekday by myself. Um, I'm down. Yeah, it, it's a good tradition. Uh so on Thursday, I saw Suspiria. Uh, the last movie of this type I saw was Mother in an almost entirely empty theater. Uh, uh, Pete, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I think you mean Mother! You are correct. Mother! Uh, there were like four other people in that theater with me. Suspiria, the theater was reasonably filled. Um, probably because it's a much better movie than Mother was. Well, um, and also I think Suspiria only opened in like six theaters. Really? Really? It, well, it's not that small, but it's not a wide-release yeah. movie. That's fair. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was long, but the middle was luxurious. Like, I kind of just want to spend hours watching Tilda Swinton teach, teach dance and or magic to uh, Dakota Johnson. Um, so, like, it didn't feel like it dragged. It, if anything, I kind of kept thinking, like, no, I want more of this. Um, I have not seen the original one, uh, this, and I think that's probably to the better, because based on reviews and, and critical things I've been reading, they're very different films. Um, this Suspiria is not, th there are, like, a few moments of deep, uh, horror, gruesome, ugh, bits, uh, during it, but not too many. And then the climax is so over the top 
that it's almost like not disturbing because it's so excessive. Um, mm. It's also gorgeous. The entire film is gorgeous. Tom York does the score, and it is lovely. Uh, it sounds very similar to, uh, like, Daydreaming from Moonshaped Pool. Um, and my final two thoughts are that Dakota Johnson and... Um, absolutely blanking on her name, but she plays... Uh, I'm blanking on everything here, guys. Sorry. Uh, who's the, the non-Aria surviving daughter in Game of Thrones? This is all. Sansa. Um... Sophie Turner. Sophie Turner. Uh, oh, she's in it. No, but Dakota Johnson looked so much like Sophie Turner that uh, uh, I think they should play siblings in some movie or TV show. And then I also want some art house movie or show where Tilda Swinton and Tom York play possibly the same person. Um, so those are my takes on it. I would honestly not be sad if Dakota Johnson continued to have. Kristen Stewart's career, basically. <laughs> so after Kristen Stewart was in the Twilight movies, she made a bunch of like small release, pretty critically well acclaimed like art indie films. And if Dakota Johnson comes off the Fifty Shades of Grey series and does weird stuff like Suspiria, I think that's kind of awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've not seen Dakota Johnson in anything since I haven't seen the Fifty Shades movies. Oh, um, you can be honest with us. Okay, I have not seen the Fifty Shades movies, <laughs> uh, but she she was incredible in this. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing her in more things. Hopefully. Okay, uh, Mark, I would like you to go next because explain, please. <laughs> okay, so. Um, this past Friday, uh, a musical act called Grape Tooth released their self-titled album, Grape Tooth. Um, the uh, group consists of two guys, uh, Chris Bailoni and uh, Clay Frankel, both from Chicago. Uh, both very good friends with our younger brother, um, and uh, Clay is better known as one of the, uh, I guess you could call him one of the front men of the band Twin Peaks. Um, the album is like, it's delightful, it's high energy, it's super feel good, it's very sort of synthy and punchy. Um, I keep comparing it to, if you or any of your listeners have seen Call Me By Your Name, there is a scene where Army Hammer very expressively dances to a psychedelic first song. The album is basically just that scene as an entire album. It's just like kind of yeah just just brash and youthful and fun and the name grape tooth is a reference to being a wine aficionado so a lot of it feels like you've been drinking red wine all night and you just want to dance until sunrise basically it's just a delightful piece of work it sounds yeah that does sound delightful <laughs> yeah uh i want to use grape tooth now as the official term for like a wine expert instead of like a White wine Eric or whatever. Uh, not oh, so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that word I can never pronounce. Um, yeah, grape tooth would knock it down a peg. <laughs> Gives it sort of like a folksy charm too. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Also, I, I didn't realize it was one of the Twin Peaks boys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just I I was just looking at the name Grape Tooth and wondering what. What possibly? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um. So. 
what stuck in my head this week, uh, Guy Branham is one of my favorite people on the internet. He is the host of the podcast Pop Rocket, which I think I've talked about on the show before. Um, but I find him very funny and insightful. And he's also a stand-up comedian. And I recently started paying for Amazon Prime Music so that I could listen to his album, Effable, which is very funny. I highly recommend it. Uh, but what in particular is stuck in my head about it is that Guy is a really... He's a, he's a big person. He's... Um, he has a lot of jokes on the album that are about being fat and being gay. And what struck me the most about them is that the audience is clearly less comfortable with him making those jokes about himself than he is about making them. Hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about this idea of other people's comfort levels. Like, like it, it clearly he he is clearly willing to riff on himself for being fat and then like how how much of a right do people have to be uncomfortable about that like if he doesn't care like he's not doing it to be um like self-effacing or whatever do we then get to be uncomfortable about the fact that he's clearly totally fine with his body Right. It'd be like an entire other thing if he were making jokes about, like, fat people in general or other people. But since it's him, right, it's weird. Like, he, yeah. he, has, a, he has a fairly, um, like, his voice is very kind of a, a feat, like, kind of typical. And he has a, in his newly published memoir, he talks about, like, the quote-unquote gay voice. Mm. And it, it was another thing where I reading it I felt a little uncomfortable but then I was like I don't really get to feel uncomfortable about this because it's not my lane mm -hmm. like I have this is one of those things where I have to set my own discomfort aside for the experience that is being related to me and it was just it was very it was a very interesting experience to listen to that because his jokes are really funny like the stand-up yeah. is really funny and then you you stop and you're like why am I also kind of feeling uncomfortable if he's clearly playing this for a laugh yeah that's interesting I'm, I'm genuinely curious to hear some of this stuff now i i highly recommend it it's on yeah. spotify i think uh -huh. the it's on spotify um i don't pay for spotify yeah so, so i found <laughs> yeah i had it on amazon prime but i don't think it's hard to find so yeah effable by guy Branham. Mm. we are going to take a quick break and when we come back we are going to uh, hopefully explain to both me and you what we mean by the ghosts of memory. today is the ghosts of memory and time. Uh, we are going to be talking loosely about how ghosts in our homework stories function both literally and metaphorically. Uh, we are going to be talking about time paradoxes uh, and what the ghosts uh, have to say about that um, and how those uh, 
affect, improve, or detract from uh, the story, uh, and also how fractured time in a narrative sense uh, functions as a story device, uh, and probably some other stuff as it comes out. Um, I think it... <laughs> do you want to get in the fight right away, or do you want to hold off on it? I was going to oh, say, no. <laughs> who, do we, who do we feel makes the most sense to start this conversation with? Here is the most unlike the other two, so that should either be the first or the last. Okay, I think I'd like to start with it, because honestly, I'm hoping that Mark can explain to me... Well, actually, no, I'm going to let Mark start uh, with his homework. Uh, okay. So I selected the uh, graphic novel Here by uh, Richard McGuire. Um, it is a graphic forward book. It's an experimental book. Um, it's one of those ones that is chock full of narrative, but I feel like the pleasure I receive from it is largely in sort of conception and execution. Um, basically, to explain the format of the book, it is essentially a corner of a room um, that the artist focuses in on. And then over the course of the book, uh, kind of micro panels, I guess you could call them, fracture all throughout on a given page and uh, just kind of show little slices into the history of that space in time over many millennia of time, basically. So panels that describe 1940 with someone vacuuming on the same page as a panel with a dinosaur uh, wandering around in uh, the Cretaceous period. I probably messed up the science there, but you get the idea. It's it's a fourth dimensional book. Um, yeah, because, that's a good way to describe it. Because the, the point of view, the, the camera lens never moves, um, mm -hmm. but you see multiple times within that frame um, happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So here's my big question about this book. I thought it was fascinating to look at I am not quite sure what story I was supposed to be getting from it, or if there was one, or if that is even beside the point. I think it's option C more than anything. As Pete said, like a fourth dimensional book. I Again, I think the the concept is really the, the thing at play here, just kind of experiencing um, a sort of meditative walk through uh, space and time. One, one thing that I enjoyed was um and th this is related to the story idea there was certainly no clear story but there were a lot of um connected ties mm -hmm. um you know you have like the in the modern-ish time like 1980s through present you have archaeologists coming and looking at the backyard or people making references to like yeah i think ben franklin used to live across the street um, mm -hmm. And then at the same time, you see those past moments where uh, we're looking at um, Native people inhabiting the land before settlers coming, people building a house, and then eventually Franklin's son living there. Um, so it's all like, it is interconnected in a way where the, 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 the present is in dialogue with the past. Um, and then near the end, there's a, a future bit as well. So the future is in dialogue with the present. Um but you're right, I think, Martha, that there's no, like, story. It's just the interwoven history. Well, so then, I guess... Oh, oh, go ahead, Martha, excuse me. I, well, I was going to ask a follow-up question. So if you had another thought about what Pete was saying, you should go first. Oh, okay. I was just generally piggybacking there. And that, again, there is no... 
this is going to sound a bit broad, I suppose, but uh, the story of the book is just the story of that space existing, I suppose. And uh, as the reader getting a vantage point into that sort of um, extremely uh, wide spectrum of stories gives you context in daily life as to that, you know, time is always moving, never ceasing. Uh, spaces exist uh, with or without people. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it's almost, it reminds me a little bit of Cloud Atlas, although without the sort of genre convention at that point. So what do you guys think the takeaway is supposed to be um, like from the way that he overlays like what? So, okay, let me back up. I got a little frustrated because he, the mix of what time and like what time periods he chooses to overlay on each other occasionally felt pointed like he he mm -hmm. would occasionally line up certain events to show sort of well i i assume to show sort of a ripple effect like how something similar can be happening in multiple times but then there were other times where it felt really random what he chose to kind of superimpose like what scene he chose to be the larger background page and then what snapshots he chose to overlay over that so what was your takeaway on his decisions to line up certain time periods with others? Hmm. I, I agree 100% that sometimes it felt pointed and, and planned and other times it felt random. So I don't have a good answer because I, <laughs> I, I had the same frustration you did. Because, yeah, I guess my... At the end, I was like, well, that was kind of cool, but I don't know what my takeaway was supposed to be. Like, I, I wasn't quite sure what, even if he's not telling a story, I wasn't quite sure what his thesis was. Sure. Again, I don't know. I think that if there's a thesis here, it's just that this is a neat idea. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think as far as um, composition and whatnot, I think mostly what he's going for on any given page is um, narrative contrast. Um, wherein you have extremely domestic scenes uh, contrasted with extremely dramatic scenes, um, whether they be properly dramatic, like, you know, a fight or something like that, or sort of subtly dramatic, like, uh, you know, just a forest enveloping the background and then a single panel of, you know, like a kid playing with jacks or something in the 50s. I, I, I will say that, there are still, like, I, I read this book maybe a week ago or so, and there are still, like, images from it that I am thinking of. Like, there was a, a three-panel, or a three-page spread where, like, we're looking at a tree that is growing slowly. Like, so, at, at or, or even within one page, it was, like, the sapling is inset, and then the, the background is the full tree. So you can be like, oh, shoot, like, that sapling is becoming that tree that we see both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um... But, but that it, it it feels very like impressionistic and like a um art experiment more than a thing that like we're maybe necessarily supposed to get a takeaway from yeah I should actually there's context here too this was originally a it's like an eight page short story um 
written in the late 80s, I think. And that, I'd say, was much more uh, tightly narratively focused in that within all these sort of um, intrusions into weird moments in time, there was a very specific kind of like the life of a whole person is what you're seeing, basically. Um, so that was, again, much sort of tighter, more narrative-focused thing where you're seeing someone's life. This, he sort of expanded out, got more interested, I suppose, in the idea, and, yeah, just made it as broadly uh, into time as possible. I think I might have enjoyed that short story more. Yeah. Because I can see where something with this effect would be really cool in showing, like, the cycles of a person's life. Like, how moments of your life can mirror or ripple into other moments. Like, that sounds cool to me. Mm -hmm. The scope of this book was so broad that I think I just lost the... The thread? The thread, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although it sounds like there wasn't really meant to be much of a thread in the first place. I don't know if there is, no. So, Mark, I have have one more question for Mark. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sort of two questions. But Mm -hmm. first, so you picked our topic for today. Yeah. When you picked it, did you have this book in (laughs) mind, or did that come later? It came later. Um, Originally, Pete asked me about a topic, and it was around Halloween time, and I was like, uh, how about ghosts? And Pete was like, we just kind of did a spooky episode. Like, <laughs> okay. How about uh, the persistence of memory and time? That's like ghosts. And he was like, okay, that's that's fine. Um, so, I don't know. Exploring this topic, I, I found a, a lot of interesting um, pieces of art that I liked a lot that sort of had this theme, you know, sort of built in within it. But this was the most literal articulation of the theme I could find. So I felt it was maybe good just to provide a sort of a background context to what I was talking about with this idea. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And then I guess my secondary question, I lied when I said I only had one. Sorry. <laughs> um, how do we feel about the memories, I guess, in this book functioning as ghosts? Because I'm not sure... I feel like I would have wanted there to be more direct interaction between the time periods. Yeah. I find, I mean, it, 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 the point of view is objective. And by virtue of that, you can't ever um, create sort of a narrative arc or find meaning from it beyond, I suppose, your own meaning that you derive from the experience of reading the book. That's um, an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually directly in contrast with the other choices, the other uh, pieces of homework for today, uh, by virtue of that. You don't have a point of view character in any way. The the flip side is that the reader is the ghost. Um, sure, yeah. And I'm thinking here of uh, a ghost story, a um, mm-hmm. movie from a couple of years ago, where it ends, uh, where he is sort of stuck in this house, in this, in this physical space as a ghost, um, for the rest of time and there's like a 30 minute sequence where he is just standing there as everything changes around him um and that felt very similar to this where you if you the reader are the ghost looking at everything changing around you and unable to influence or or move anything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i really like that reading actually Mm. um i also like the idea that 
the um, the impact of the memory changes based on who the reader is, hmm. because I bet some sequences in this book were more resonant resonant um, with different readers based on their experiences. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, I, I used the term meditative earlier, and I think that term is specifically apt to this text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one last thing, uh, tune in in about a month when we have an episode about Show, Don't Tell, where I am furious that we can't Ooh. assign this book for it because this is, like, a kind of great example of it. <laughs> Don't give people don't give people <laughs> windows into things we haven't really talked about yet. <laughs> Time is fluid. It's fine. <laughs> Time is a flat this, circle. Yeah, this um, is your snapshot into the future. Now that I have made a Matthew McConaughey reference, it's time for Pete <laughs> to tell us about his homework for today. Uh, I was going to make a joke about five minutes ago uh, where I was going to say, oh, so having a really good idea in the center of something that you surround then by maybe a little too much bloat uh, detracts from that good idea. Christopher Nolan doesn't know anything about that. (laughs) He learned his lesson in Dunkirk. However, he did not learn his lesson in Interstellar, which is the uh, homework that I assigned. Um, uh, We've all seen Interstellar. Uh, Matthew McConaughey goes through a wormhole to save the world and ends up in a tesseract where he ends up being his own ghost Um, which set the whole events of everything into motion. Um, I I saw this in theaters, was blown away by the visuals, a little lackluster on the plot. Have watched scenes of it um, between now and then, mostly the visual scenes, uh, because they are so stunning. Um, This is the first time I rewatched the entire movie all the way through, focusing on the plot. And for about seven-eighths of the movie, I was like, okay, I'm like, this is working for me still. I enjoy the ghost idea, even knowing who it is at the end. Um, that almost makes it better because it's not like a weird, are they aliens question? It's like, oh no, it's a Tesseracti McConaughey. Um, but then the end definitely still fell very flat for me. Um, and I think it's about 40, 30 to 45 minutes too long. Um, and I could feel places where I would cut knowing how it ends, um, to, to streamline it and make it a little bit quicker of a movie um that being said it also is very meditative in its own way yeah to your point uh, interstellar to me sometimes i i should start by saying i I really love this movie i'm a big fan of christopher nolan um it would be remiss of me to not speak of the score of this film the hans Zimmer score is Mm -hmm. insane it's Mm -hmm. pipe organs and ticking and it's great um but (laughs) hans zimmer in a nolan movie doing ticking you don't say (laughs) But, um, yeah, to your point about the ending, it, the movie kind of feels like Christopher Nolan had this idea about, you know, going through a wormhole and ghosts in time. And then, you know, some studio exec asked, well, how does it end? And he was like, oh, um, and just kind of wrote something in. I hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did apologize in advance when I assigned it. Um. I think there's a really good 90-minute movie in there somewhere, and it all takes place on the ship after they come back from the wave planet and find out that it's been, like, 25 years on the ship while they were down there for, like, an hour. Yeah, the, the fact where they handbrush that and, like, uh, Romilly is, like, now 25 years older than them, he should be super crazy and probably kill them. Uh, it should be a horror movie. Because there's the whole McConaughey crying scene, which is great. 
Yeah, but that's about him, not about, like, their friend they abandoned on a spaceship for 25 years. Well, yeah, the movie's about him. Romilly? No. Yeah, well, that's, who I'm, that's who I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the real protagonist of this film. Um, like, I, I totally get its function in this conversation, but also I hate this movie a lot. <laughs> um, um, I, I will say, I, you, you have only yourself haven't... to blame because I thought of this as I was watching Hill House um, in the way that, like, the time paradoxes and, like, things causing themselves, um, which we'll get into later, but that. So you incepted this idea into my brain by assigning Hill House. Yeah. Listen. Taking no responsibility <laughs> for my actions. <laughs> Um, but I do want to, I, I feel like we would be remiss in this conversation if we did not talk about Jessica Chastain's character mm -hmm. and how, because McConaughey being his own ghost is not just, a, does not just affect his choices, um, but they affect Jessica Chastain's also. Because like, she is the one I think that he is trying to reach out to when he is caught in the Tesseract um, by knocking like the books off the shelf, mm -hmm. like she's she's the one seeing them, and that's a that's a scene that we saw earlier in the movie, um, and then we kind of get to see it from the other angle. I I really like movies and and shows and whatnot that do that that show you events and then through time loops or whatever we see them again from the other side and and have. A different understanding of what's going on um yeah right it, it's one of those like magic trick type deals where even if you know the mechanics of the trick every time you're still like he pulled a rabbit out of a hat this is delightful <laughs> uh one one thing about jessica chastain's character that i did like um at the very end he ends up on uh, mcconaughey ends up on cooper station and he's like oh they named it after me and they're like huh no we named it after your daughter who did oh. all the saving um which I thought was a nice little touch. Well, because, yeah, because again, like, he becomes... the Also, the memory of him becomes such a driving force for Jessica Chastain, who I'm going to continue to refer to by her actor name because her character name is Murph. It's Murph! Excuse me, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so, like, because a lot of her motivation is driven by the fact that her dad <laughs> disappears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and even though it's, like, to save the world or whatever, like, tell that to an adolescent girl. <laughs> it's like, hey, your dad is leaving forever. Yeah. yeah. And we it's a choice that he's making. It's yeah. not just, Yeah. Um, that's a really good, that's actually, I, that's a good take. I've never thought about that too much. I feel like that's a, a small failure of the film is that to me, the protagonist of the film is solely Matthew McConaughey as Cooper. But uh, I mean, they spend time on Murph's arc. They, they build it and they do that sort of stuff, but I don't feel they ever properly explore it or give a respectful exploration to the idea of her pathos and her um, 
her loss. Are, are you saying Chris Nolan's not Christi great? Okay, great. <laughs> I was going to say, Christopher Nolan is bad at women. <laughs> That's yes. a hot take right there. <laughs> no one's ever said that before. <laughs> As Martha and I almost said it at the exact same time. <laughs> no, Listen, and then I, I appreciate a lot about Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I can still say that he's bad at women. Yes. Well, and he's also like bad at, I don't know. Emotion? That sort of... Um, that sort of, I don't know, what am I trying to say? He's hes spinning a lot of plates, so by virtue of that, he can never focus too much on the smaller plates. He needs to spin the Matthew McConaughey plate more than any other plate. And well, that's and, uh, to the disservice of the character of Murph. Well, and I think that Christopher Nolan is a really good high-concept guy. Like, if you look at this, and he did Inception, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, so like movies like that where you have a lot going on, like you said, Mark, a lot of plates spinning in the air. I think he's really good at coming up with those um, high concept ideas, but that's not necessarily what I am the most interested in. Like, I think Inception did a really good job at also getting into like the emotional core of Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And, like, that was the part that I was more interested in. So it was also really frustrating for me to watch Interstellar um, and be really interested in the emotional growth that Murph goes through and to have that not be, like, even a second thought of the movie. It's just sort of something that happens kind of in the background. Definitely, like, off screen. Yeah. Well, an important uh, bit of context for this film is that uh, it was originally... Um, conceived by uh, a physicist named Kip Thorne, uh, who's known for the film Contact. Um, mm. And he originally was working on this with Spielberg back in the early 2000s. So that's kind of where the movie began. And then after about a decade, Nolan picked it up, and uh, his brother Jonathan, who he frequently works with, um, collaborated with Kip Thorne on a sort of redrafted script at that point. So this is this is one of the few times that no one's working from a story that is not his own thing. It's very much sort of an existent thing that he's trying to sort of, you know, connect the dots while making. I would love to see the Spielberg version of this because this I feels... I was just thinking that. <laughs> this feels way more like a Spielberg... Like, the, the, the story beats are Spielbergian. Yeah. Like, it's, it's about a family and about a dad and a, a child relationship, and, like, there's an emotional... <laughs> there is emotion in the movie, unlike uh, a lot of Nolan stuff. So that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is, like, watching this movie, sometimes you're like, this is Christopher Nolan making a Spielberg movie. Not trying to emulate Spielberg, but literally making a Spielberg movie. And that's kind of where some of the incongruity comes from, where... He's not interested in that stuff at all. He's not interested in, you know, childlike wonder and stuff like that. He's interested in massive space concepts and time tesseracts and things like that. Uh, so I am going to move on to my homework now at this point because <laughs> I, well, I, I want to get to the part of the discussion where we start talking about how all of these things talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, but first, I have to talk about how grateful I am that we have an excuse to talk about The Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> For a second episode um, in a row. So first, I am just going to lay out to our listeners, spoiler warning for Hill House. It is a fairly recent show on Netflix. We are going to be spoiling 
probably up through episode six at least, and maybe also further plot points into the show. So uh, if that is not something that you want to hear, you may want to skip the rest of this episode. Mark, how far through did you get? Uh, I got through episode six. Okay, cool. Okay, so we will we will try and stick to those first six episodes. Um, so The Haunting of Hill House is a Netflix show that came out uh, about a month ago about the Crane family, um, and half of the show takes place in the early 90s, I think, um, where the Crane house has moved, the Crane family has moved into Hill House, uh, which the, which Olivia and Hugh, the parents, are planning to flip, uh, except it is super haunted, super full of ghosts, uh, and the rest of the show takes place in a modern setting where the children are adults and dealing with the traumas of living in this house. Um, there is no mama crane in the future episodes, uh, because something really awful and sad happened at the beginning of the show that we kind of learn more about as the show progresses. Uh, I'm obsessed with this show. And... <laughs> I it has it has some problems, particularly in the back half, but I really enjoyed it. Um, there are lots and lots of spooky ghosts, but also I think there are some readings of, of the show, particularly in the modern times, um, where those ghosts are not necessarily actually there, um, but functioning more as you know the memories, like the the traumatic memories that these kids are still working through. Um, I particularly wanted to talk about episode five, yes. where we find out, so we have Nellie, who is one of the, she and her twin Luke are the two youngest Crane siblings, and she, all of her life, has been haunted by a ghost that she calls the Bent Neck Lady, uh, and in episode five, again, spoiler alert, episode five, we find out that the Bent Neck Lady is Nellie, and she has been haunting herself for her entire life from the moment that she is, I was going to say commit suicide, but that's not accurate in the world of the show from the moment that she returns to Hill house and is killed by hanging. Gets ghost uh, murdered. Go, mm -hmm. Yeah. She gets ghost murdered. Um, and then during basically while she's dying flits back through her entire life to see um, herself, basically, like through different points of her life. That ending, like the, the back half of episode five, followed up by episode six, which is an absolute tour de force of filmmaking, um, was an incredible one-two punch for this show. Um, like, the, like it, those two things kind of both broke my brain and then set me up to enjoy the rest of it more uh, than I think I actually did. But by then I was so, like, enthralled by what they had done. Um, I was much more, I don't know, like, forgiving for the next couple episodes. Because um, <clears throat> I, I really enjoyed the show, but I, it took me a couple episodes to get into it because it was so staged. Um, yeah, I'll piggyback off that. I was going to say, I I definitely struggled with the first, like, three or four episodes. I don't know. Doesn't it doesn't help that the first dude, like, the 
the brother, the older Steve. brother, Steve is yeah. like the least interesting of all of them. Steve yeah. is the worst. Yeah, so uh-huh. I'm glad that he's the, the, the cornerstone of the first episode. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I still know how I feel about the show. I thought, uh, I'm glad we're looking at episode five because I really enjoyed that one. And six, the format was very interesting, but I also sort of, I don't know. All the characters annoy me a little bit, except for Luke and Nelly. Yo. I, <laughs> I, I like Yo the dad, I'll favorite. be honest. Well, and I love to see Timothy Hutton getting work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the young dad was played by Elliot from E.T.? Yes. Henry Thomas? Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Huh. But so one of one of the th- so like obviously a lot of the most of the ghosts in Hill House are very very real very literal, um, but in episode six, um, you get your first kind of inklings that some of them are not, some of them are much more a reflection of the traumas that these characters have carried with them, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. Like um, Timothy Hutton spends a lot of episode six talking to. Um, a version of Olivia who he kind of carries with him. And for a while I was like, is this actually like, is this her ghost is the one that's in Hill house, maybe like um, a sort of evil reflection. And I, I think that that's not it. I think that the, the Olivia that Hugh talks to and like carries with him in the present is when he when he calls her a coping mechanism, I think that is the truth of that. Mm. Um, so she's not actually a ghost. She's just his memory that he is like using to deal with the the events of what happened to them in the house. but but she's also very um, she's much more. She's good with the kids in a way that he isn't and is, like, giving him advice. Do you think that's just his subconscious? I think that that's him knowing the right thing to do. And, like, I think it's it's the struggle that he has between knowing the right thing to say but then not being able to say it because he's still him. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say, I, I think, uh, speaking about the show in the context of, you know, ghosts and memory and time and all that is... I'm glad we're doing that. I struggled, especially in those early episodes, with the show as a horror show, which I guess, would you guys argue that it is or is not a horror show? Oh, yeah. Yeah? I mean, I just, as something as something that's designed to scare you, yes. But that's, that's the thing. I found none of it scary whatsoever. And not in a sort of like, oh, that's not, I, man, they get scared very easily. But just so much in that, like, I don't know, it, there's no sense of danger in the past episodes because you already know that everybody's not fine, but alive, you know? Well, but the danger in the past episodes is not that, oh, someone might die. It's what damage have these kids, like, what caused their damage in the past? And also, what happened to Olivia? Like, that's the the main thrust of the horror in the past episodes, I think, is like, what what did she do? And sure. you haven't you haven't gotten there yet. No, I haven't. But so that's um, kind of what I'm saying, though. Is I'm glad we're talking about it in these terms because, to that point, I'm thinking very specifically about when um, Luke goes down to the dumb waiter and there's a weird zombie down there. Uh huh. There's that, 
there's a great horror shot where like an arm just appears and it's very spooky. But then watching it, I know Luke is not mauled by a zombie because he's alive and fine. So there's no <laughs> asterisks on fine. Oh, yeah, the asterisks on fine. Um, well, that's there's one no of, tension to the scene. That I think is one of the weaker moments of the show. Yeah. It it strikes me that every episode has like one big jump scare, possibly yeah. out of the feeling of obligation that it should. And those are always the weakest moments of the show. That yeah. being said, episode five and, and then maybe seven or eight had jump scares where I screamed so loudly that Marn came running. It's like, are you okay? I'm like, yes, I'm watching Hill House. <laughs> um, yeah, I, just, I had the opposite reaction to those jump scares, though. I felt like nothing from them and then felt a little begrudged by the show because I, I was so... The the horror treatment had been done so uninterestingly to me. I'll say that the, the jump scares I'm talking about were pure visceral, like violin sting plus shocking image all of a sudden. Sure, leads to sure. Like, like that is a physiological response, not a psychological response. Right. I also think that a lot of the horror, particularly in the past events, is less like ghosts and more watching how this family falls apart mm -hmm. yeah it, it, it's more of a trauma than a horror thing well uh, I, I think that's semantics i mean sure. i think like if we're gonna talk about what what label is netflix putting on this show like it's a horror show it has ghosts and jump scares and like a house that wants to eat people like whether or not we personally find it scary it it's a horror vehicle sure but I, I i'd argue that that horror films horror fiction should operate through certain mechanics basically and i feel that this does not operate this this uh, is a this is a family drama with a horror veneer yeah yeah they're like there are ghosts in this so it's a spooky thing and you're like oh cool and then you're like actually it's not a spooky thing it's more about again like memory and time and trauma and you're like oh that's interesting but like the horror veneer is throwing me for a loop it's more like a um it reminded me a lot of um oh boy a Guillermo del Toro film with Jessica oh, Chastain uh, uh, Crimson, Crimson Peak. Peak yes because that was very similar where it has the trappings of a horror film but Ultimately, not really a horror film, more like a gothic drama. Let's let's revisit this discussion when you finish the show, because a lot of that then takes place in the present, where anything could happen. Well, and so I'll say, during Luke's episode, where there was a weird floaty man behind him, um, I, I that was, I think, the first moment in the show where I was like, oh, this is a little tense. I don't know what's going to happen to this character. Oh, this when, he's on the, when he's on the street? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that ghost is really there. Ooh, I think I think that's one of the places where it's him remembering something from the house. I you you think the ghost was there in the house when he was a kid, but not yes, it hasn't left the house. Correct. Oh, mm -hmm. That's another scene though, where he's under the bed hiding from the tall floaty man. Like I was not invested in that at all, despite the interesting design of the character I and wanted, the sort of spooky thing. I wanted because, to. Like, vomit during that scene <laughs> but again like i knew he was gonna be okay i knew he exists in modern day so like i was gonna say define okay mark okay, yeah, none yeah, yeah, of yeah. these kids are okay <laughs> i keep asterisking that term i know he will be alive and not well <laughs> well and i think that that's one of the things that you kind of have to let go of is the idea that 
like the only damage that we're talking about is physical. I think that the the point of the past is showing how the house has damaged them in very real ways that may not be physical, well, but it's like, still horrifying to watch. Sure, and I, I appreciate that, but that's kind of what I'm getting at: is it feels less like it's operating under the traditional mechanics of a horror film, and more like it's operating under again, like a family drama or a, a piece about how trauma persists and affects and clings to you like a ghost. Psychological horror is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing there. So, all right. So we have argued about these for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's talk about, let's talk about a little bit about, um, or let's get into our discussion questions. So we've talked a little bit about how the ghosts in the stories are functioning like as metaphors and also as literal ghosts. Um, I'm interested in kind of in the time aspect of our topic today, uh, like how how time is functioning almost as a ghostly presence in these stories. Um, and I, I think that's actually going to be pertinent to all three of them because mm-hmm. uh, in in here time is sort of the ultimate ghost that we're dealing with well so so i kind of threw time in to the title of this episode near the end when i realized that all three of our works fracture time in some way um like hill house we have the back and forth between the present and the past um and then ghosts of even further in the past and then interstellar you have like a time loop um, and also just because of like time dilation is a big part of it. Um, and then here is obviously it, it's only just looking at fractured time. Um, so I, I realized as I was consuming these medias that like time is a through line for all of them. Well, and they're not even, so this idea of time as being the, uh, I guess not necessarily hostile, because I don't think it's hostile in here, but time as being this sort of conscious presence mm. um, is an stab. Well, it comes up also in a book that we didn't read for this homework, but I've been thinking about a lot um, in 11-22-63, the mm. Stephen King novel about the assassination of JFK. And, and you liked that one, right? I did. Well, and in that one, it's really interesting because time becomes the um, hostile force in that one. Like the the character is fighting against the like actual history because he's trying to change it, and every time he changes it, it fights back. Hmm. So you get time as a very literal um, antagonist. So the idea of time as being a character in and of itself is really interesting to me. Um, because it, it these aren't the only places it's shown up. Mm-hmm. Well, in Interstellar, they talk of it as like a resource that they need to manage, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is a good way to think about it. <laughs> it's a very um, Christopher Nolan way of thinking about it. Yeah, d- d- yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and then in in Hill House, it's it's not that time is the enemy, but like. Time's not the enemy. It's almost the medium. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah that's, that's a good I, way to put it. That's something I was thinking about um, with this topic. Uh, the the grudge came to mind just because that's Ugh. such like a... Well, sure. Uh, but it's such a literal articulation of 
the idea of ghosts and culture, you know, wherein something terrible happened once and that persists through time that, you know, exists even through, even if you're not, not talking about literal spooky ghosts, you know, it's still, there's a feeling, there's sort of a way that sort of. Like, like the echoes stains, of the trauma. Yeah. It stains a place through existence, which is what, which is what's so spooky about ghosts, I guess. It's also, Pete, if we wanted to go back to our previous episode, it's the, the premise Shining. of The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly that. Um, okay, related, actually. Hill, somewhat, Hill House, do we think that the house itself is malevolent, like, from from construction, or do we think that it's the horrific events that happened there make it? One of One of my complaints, actually, about the show... And I do want to mention that I, I don't think the show is perfect. Um, <laughs> but one of my complaints about the show is that we don't really find out enough through the course of it to know. Because I I would have been really fascinated to know, like, how much of the how much of it is the history of the house and how much of it is just the house. Right. Was it built on uh, an ancient burial ground? Was it built and, using arcane sigils in its construction? Well, I, I think that's a less interesting conception, though, because it's more interesting that spaces are objective, much like in here. You know, spaces have no feelings, have no thoughts, have no nothing. They're just, they just exist. And that it, it's people and and interactions that cause these ghosts to persist. I think that what the show is leading towards is the idea that Hill House has been corrupted by the people that have lived there. It just never, it never really fulfills that. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm I'm all in on places that like get, yeah, for lack of a better word, corrupted by mm. the things that happen there, the people that are there. Like the more that you murder someone or the more people that die in a house like the more tainted it gets yeah because it's like saturated with the um like the pain and the sadness and the fear of the people that have died there and then we hit a feedback loop where yeah more murders lead to even more murders lead to even more corruption yeah i was listening to another podcast this apparently is just let martha reference stuff that we didn't do as homework (laughs) um and he let me know if you want to cut this out, but I, I just listened to an episode of How Stuff Works, or no, not How Stuff Works, Stuff You Should Know, about the Amityville Horror mm. and the like real-life events that happened there. And it, it, it's, it sounds like that was a, a lot of hoaxes that are kind of built on this idea that like once one bad thing happens in a place, it starts to ripple out into other... Like, it, it ripples out and affects other people uh, in that place. So you get mm-hmm. people kind of trapped in a time loop of reenacting the horrible things that have happened in a place that has become sort of fundamentally evil. Yeah. That's actually um, uh, sort of shifting gears a little bit, but that's something we didn't talk about from Interstellar. There's that scene where uh, Anne Hathaway gets crazy warped hands, and oh, we find yeah. out... Yeah, we find out later it was uh, Cooper reaching through time to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, because when he's when he's in his little tesseract hell, like he's he's trapped in all times. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but like, so, so that brings me to, to the thing I wanted to talk about, which was Interstellar in that scene and in the Tesseract in general. Um, and then Hill House both have like a, a complete time loop where we find out at the end or at some point that the cause has been like almost like preordained. Like Cooper literally sends himself to NASA to get everything going. Um, mm-hmm. And then like Nell has been haunting herself, which means that like it, it's almost, I, I think it's trying to say it's inevitable that she's going to end up there. Um, there was never any saving her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's, I like that a lot in the sense, Mark, you were saying earlier, of like the magic trick of like, ooh, cool. Um, But I can also see it being like disappointing for some people when it's like, well, what's the point if it's all preordained? I just thought it was was so desperately sad because for for Nell, you can also see how the choices of all the people around her contribute to that inevitability. Like it's not just that she is preordained to do that, but it's that, like, her siblings were never going to answer the phone. Her mm-hmm. her therapist was always going to send her back to the house. Like, that was the part about that that made me so desperately sad, was because it's not just the choices she is making, it's also how everyone around her is contributing to that. Mm-hmm. I will say, I, um, I again, I, I really enjoyed that episode, um, and I think... I think that sort of story is almost always effective only because it it plays this little trick on your brain where you're like, oh, and everything sort of circles back around. Like it, it's very sort of neat and tidy and there are no loose ends to it. So it, it's, it's satisfying in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I, I did. I was a little disappointed because um, I found it. A little derivative of the uh, the, the classic tale, uh, the monster at the end of the book, um, <laughs> because she was the monster at the end of the book. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so if you, I like... have no comment for that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Grove was afraid of a monster. He goes a whole book terrified of a monster at the end of the book. The page turns. He was the monster all along. So narratively Man satisfying was... <laughs> for a three-year-old. Great. <laughs> Man was the bad guy all the time. <laughs> Soil and green people. We are the monster. <laughs> no, I guess I, sort of joking aside, I, I really liked how the episode and even the series framed the bent neck lady as this very sinister force, this very frightening thing that like, oh, that's kind of like the, the big boss character for now. She's got to come to terms with this. And then you're like, oh, it was her. She wasn't even a sinister force. She was just trapped. Well, and I think that that may be true for most of the ghosts in Hill House. Mm-hmm. Except for the crazy flapper lady. She's crazy. Well, I don't. Your brother <laughs> hasn't gotten there yet, Peter. There's a what? <laughs> Spoiler, there's more ghosts. Mm. So oh, What? Sick with ghosts. Have you guys read anything about how ghosts are just sort of hanging out in the background of every scene of that show? Yeah, I haven't seen that. That's, yep. that's cool. Appreciate that. Uh, so I, if I had a, if I had one of those bells to ring for a, a boxing match, I would do it. I think we are at the end of this round. <laughs> we have all taken our punches. Um, <laughs> that's that's true we, we had three homeworks where we all had things to appreciate and things to disagree with 
uh, to varying I degrees. Say, I, I, I recall Pete mentioning like, oh, Martha's going to hate me for choosing Interstellar. And uh, for, for as much as I like Interstellar, I felt sort of similar about Hill House where I'm like, I don't know if this is like working for me, but I guess I could see, uh, like, I appreciate all the good stuff in there. Well, and I'm used to picking homework that Pete gets mad at me for making him experience. So. Uh, this was just the shoe on the other foot, because I like Hill House. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's going to do it for us this episode. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you download podcasts. Uh, you can communicate with us via our Facebook page or at Twitter. Uh, we are on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. Uh, you can also email us if you have questions, comments, ideas for future shows, want to be a guest, uh, whatever. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can also affect the gravitational waves to cause uh, Morse code to send us messages that we certainly won't uh, understand that at all. Um, and Ouija boards might work as well. Do cool. not encourage people to interstellar our timeline, Peter. That's irresponsible and reckless. Uh, you can find me online at all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, you can also subscribe to my newsletter at tiny letter backslash Magical Martha. Um, I talk a lot about feelings uh, that I have about media, which are a lot. Um, I'm no longer giving recommendations for horror books or movies because we're no longer in October. Um, but I'm not quite to the point where I'm going to start recommending Christmas movies. So, you know, follow me to see where my where my moods take me on that newsletter. Uh, Pete, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, politics and pop culture. Um, and it's been an up and down last week we're recording this the sunday after the midterms so a few things have happened uh recently mm. um, and things are continuing to happen things are mm -hmm. continuing to happen i feel like we're yeah it's i uh yeah that <laughs> making noise of discomfort but also hope but mostly sadness is <laughs> this is the year 2018 yeah <laughs> Um, at least I did not wake, so I work late on Tuesday nights, which means I usually end up, like, at a point where I'm at the library just like, don't talk to me, don't touch me, can't do anything, must follow election results. Uh, so at least this week, I did not end the day in as much of a black pit of despair as I did mm. two years ago. Were you following 538? Because that. that, like, killed people. No, I wasn't following That's... 538. Oh, I was. Yeah, and did you almost <laughs> die? Yeah. Yeah, it swung no, way was... too hard, and it was not good. No, mm. I was following the Illinois-specific elections because I wanted to see certain congressmen uh, get booted out the door, and I was following the Washington Post, I mm. think. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, Mark, where can people find you if you want them to find you, and what do you have to plug, if anything? Oh, um, I am at Mark Romberg, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram and everything. Um, uh, I'm an artist and graphic designer, and sometimes I post cool stuff, so definitely check it out. Um, otherwise, yeah, you guys can find me uh, trapped inside of a recursive bookcase trying to send messages to my daughter. Listen, <laughs> what did I just say about interstellaring our timeline? <laughs> All right. 
we will be back in two weeks to talk about environmentalism. Joining us on our next episode is uh, my cousin and former guest on the pod, Caitlin Flynn. Uh, Martha is assigning the book Hoot by Carl, I'm going to go with Hyacin. Uh, Caitlin is assigning Wally, and I am assigning Grizzly Man, the 2006 documentary. Pete, how do I end this show? Uh, class dismissed. <laughs> class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>